Well, greetings to you all this morning. I hope you're having a blessed morning already and that things are good for you. I knew that this day would come, but I actually didn't think that it would come today until last night. I had actually planned to do something completely different with my sermon uh, than what I'm going to do right now. In fact, I need to change the title of it. Where's Miles? Miles, when it goes to uh, be put on the website, we need to change the, the title of the sermon. It just doesn't fit anymore. Because I've completely rewritten my sermon since last night. I am glad that God made me the ultimate morning person. The speakers sometimes change their minds and they do something like this. They say, I had this prepared speech, but I've decided to throw all that out. So today I'm throwing it out. And I'm going to do something entirely different. I was going to talk about how God uses weak men and women like the judges, to do his will. And so Gideon was weak. Samson, ironically, was incredibly weak. I am weak. You are weak. But I am not chopped liver. And you are not chopped liver. And neither were the judges. And so God was able to use them despite themselves. I was also going to talk about how patient God is with his people. The story of judges is the story of God's people failing and God loving them anyways, and continually taking them back. Every 40 years or so, a new judge comes on the scene. The people have by then become corrupt, and God brings the judge on to fix the situation. And then 40 years later, he has to do the same thing again because the people have become corrupted. So this was going to be my final slide for today. I was going to say there are two great truths. First, God is amazingly patient with his people whom he loves. Second Peter 3.10 says God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he was patient with the nation of Israel, even though they continued to sin and he had to keep bringing the judges. He's patient with them nonetheless. My second point was going to be, what am I, chopped liver? Second Kelly 3.11, God can use chopped liver if the chopped liver is willing to be used by God. Okay, that's what I was going to do. Point two was so bad, I decided to throw out the entire sermon. (laughs) No, what happened was, is that last night in a life group of which I am part, things changed for me. And so what I'm actually now going to say, I have dreaded. Let me get rid of this slide there. I have dreaded this sermon. Because in sharing it, one cannot ignore one of the great questions posed by Christians and non-Christians alike about the Bible. And that question is something like this, or these questions maybe. Why does God, who is supposed to be, according to the revelation of Jesus, loving and kind and patient, and who calls his people to be the same, in the Old Testament... Why does he encourage the brutal destruction of people in whole cities down to the last living thing? And is there not a huge contradiction and inconsistency here, and this is my biggest fear, that destroys God's credibility and calls into the question 
our belief, the legitimacy of our belief. Is that not the case? And you know, the fact is, these are questions that we all ask. If you've thought about it at all, you had to have asked these questions. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching on Abraham, getting ready to do that. Jody knew that I was going to be preaching about Abraham. And she came up to me just before the sermon and she said, I wish I could be in there today. She said, because you're going to have to deal with the fact that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his own son and kill him with a knife. What kind of God would do that? And I'd like to be in there to hear the answer, she said. Now, the fact is, that one, I think, is fairly easy to answer. God stopped him. He didn't kill his son. And because God knows everything in advance, he knew that he was going to stop him and knew what Abraham was going to do. So that one's not all that difficult to answer. It's also the case that God wasn't asking something of Abraham that he wouldn't do himself. And in fact, did do himself. So I'm not sure that that's the most difficult question. But they're not all that easy to answer. And ultimately, those who teach the Bible have either to chicken out and never attempt to answer the toughest questions, or they have to state an opinion that at least a good portion of the people who hear them are still going to find unsatisfying. And so I can come up with some answers today knowing that some of you are going to walk away shaking your head and say, well, that doesn't really satisfy me. That's just a fact. I expect that. But here's the struggle. Whether I deal with it or not, like I could just ignore it. I could ignore the question and say, you know what? I'm not even going to talk about this. I could ignore it. And it still remains a question. Or I can deal with it and you're not completely satisfied and it still remains a question. So either way, it's going to remain a question. I might as well deal with it. And so within the bounds of pathetic human understanding, giving an answer seems better to me than ignoring it. And the fact is that the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, which is right where we're at in our story of God dealing with his people, are kind of flashpoints for asking the question. And so last night, we're looking at the destruction of Jericho. And one of our young adults in the group asked the question about God's destruction of the cities of the Old Testament, specifically Jericho. And it it makes sense that she would ask this question because it's on their minds. The world keeps asking it. Young adults certainly keep asking it. Older adults keep asking it. We ask it. And so last night, we read these words. And there's a part of me that doesn't want this to be in the Bible. Okay? There's a part of me that wants to say, no, this isn't the Bible. This isn't what God does. But it is in the Bible, and this is what God does. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And this is the word of the Lord. Even the cattle, even the sheep, even the donkeys, 
Why does this take place and why does it take place with God's blessing? Does this not seem to go beyond where a loving God would go in his treatment of his creation, which he loves? And what's a little bit baffling almost to me is that the answer to this question, look at this question again. Does this not seem to go beyond where a loving God would go in his treatment of his creation, which he loves? And surprisingly, the answer, I think, is clearly not. Now, if you're like me, when I wrote those words, clearly not, it seems like the answer should be exactly the opposite. But here's the thing. I do believe that God is ultimately loving. I do believe that the Bible reveals him as being ultimately loving, caring, gracious. I believe that God wants to be in relationship with human beings. So there must be an explanation for all the destruction. Even if I don't fully understand it. In fact, I would say something like this. If my faith is to continue, there has to be a way for God's love and care for people and his desire for relationship with his creation to exist alongside the horrible stories of destruction that are found in the Old Testament. It just seems to me that this has to be the case. The destruction is there. God's love is there. Which one of them isn't true? And I would say they're both true. They have to stand together. And this is where the faith, the question of faith in God becomes crucial. What if the answer that I give today is not ultimately satisfying? What if you walk away shaking your head and think, he didn't answer the question. He didn't really get to the heart of the matter. What if I'm not smart enough to completely and satisfactorily answer the question about God allowing and calling for destruction and genocide. What if I simply can't answer that question today? What if questions still linger? What will the people who hear me do when they discuss this subject? When you walk out of here, what will you do? What will you think? Will you decide that the answers are so inadequate that you can believe in God no longer? Or will you decide that despite not having ultimately satisfying answers, that you still believe? And that seems to me to be an absolutely huge question in our times. It's one that we so easily try and get out of and not answer and yet it looms so large and we just can't ignore it and so i may in the end not ultimately understand completely everything god feels and does and all the reasons god does what he does will i continue however to trust him even when <clears throat> i don't understand Will we or won't we? It can seem 
that in my limited understanding, my irrational sometimes look at God and my questions about why these things happen, it would seem to me that I could still trust him and serve him and love him even though I don't get it. But is that rationally satisfying? And I don't know. That's something you may have to answer for yourself. But I wrestle with this. It can seem that in my limited understanding, and it sometimes seems irrational, that there is suffering and the pain, suffering and pain in the world when God clearly is quite capable of stopping it. And so it seems irrational that babies are born with deformities when God could stop it. It seems like the mass murderers who are allowed to exist by God could be prevented by him from doing what they do. It seems like the disease that racks people's bodies and causes incredible pain and agony could be taken away by him. And so why is there pain and suffering when God is good and loving and all-powerful and could stop all that pain and suffering? Why does he not stop it? And again, it seems to me there must be some answers somewhere if God is ultimately loving and cares for us. So, with all of that in mind, let me give you what I think are some answers. And again, you may walk away from here today shaking your head, saying, it doesn't work for me. But I think it works for me. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers 33. Numbers 33. And I want you to look at verse 50. Numbers 33, verse 50. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance, and to a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to, their, uh, to the, your ancestral tribes. And then look at verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then especially watch verse 56. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. A couple of comments in response to that. One is that it is clearly driving out the people is crucial for God's plan because they will corrupt Israel if they are allowed to stay. Okay? 
This seems so clear. And again, I'm not saying that answers every question. But clearly, driving out the people is crucial for God's plan because they will corrupt Israel if they are allowed to stay. There will be problems. God has a plan. He wants relationship with human beings. Israel is to be the source of the knowledge of God for the entire world. And so the source of relationship with human beings... God will reveal himself through Israel, but he can't do it if everyone forgets him. So he needs them to be purely devoted to him, absolutely uncorrupted. And they can't do that if they leave the people in the land. And here's a second point, and this one is so crucial. God will do to them what he says they should do to the other nations if they are not obedient. Do you see that? God will do to them what he says he's going to do to others if they're not obedient. Well, why? Why is God going to do it to them? And I think it is to show them just how crucial it is that they remain uncorrupted. At least that's part of it. The book of Judges, we're going to look at this in just a second, shows that he will always take Israel back. But he also needs them to be uncorrupted for the ultimate good of humankind. God wants relationship with humanity more than anything. That is for their good. But he can't have relationship with them if people refuse to be faithful to him. Relationship is always a two-way street. And he desires relationship with humankind, but he can't have it if they refuse to have relationship with him. And they need to be devoted to him in order for this to happen. He can't enjoy relationship, this kind of relationship, which is the most important thing also for human beings, if they won't continue to allow him to be their God. If lives of people are not devoted to him, He's even willing to sacrifice them in order that some be saved for relationship with him. He's willing to make that kind of sacrifice. Now just think of this. God is willing to sacrifice the life of one in order that the lives of all others be saved. Is there not a pattern here? And he is willing to sacrifice the lives of some of those in the Old Testament who refused to acknowledge him as God in order for him to have relationship with many others because it's both good for them and what he desires, relationship with them. And so God doesn't just care about human life. And this is the problem. Sometimes we think, how could God allow even the cattle to be killed and the sheep to be killed? Does he not care about those poor little lambs? Well, it's certainly not just animals that are allowed to be killed. God does care about human life, but he cares more for relationship, real relationship with some human beings than just the lives of others. And so there are some who are sacrificed when they won't have relationship with him in order that some might have relationship with him. I'll show you what I mean here. I'd like 
Abby, if she would, to come up here. And I want Miles to come up here. And let me see. Let's have... uh, Michael, why don't you come up here? All you have to do is sit. Okay? Brandon, I'll get to you in a sec. Here's Abby. And here's Michael. Okay? Abby and Michael. And let's imagine this scenario. Here's Miles. Miles, you can... It doesn't matter where you are. Okay? But stay over here. No, stay over here. You don't have to sit down anywhere. But you can be over here. Miles is important to this. Okay? Let's imagine... And, and I'm gonna, I'll create a scenario that's absurd, okay? But let's imagine this. Let's imagine that Michael is, like his role in life is to make other people heroin addicts, okay? That's his role. His role in life is to make people heroin addicts. And the fact is that to make somebody a heroin addict is to absolutely ruin their lives. But Michael has set his sights on Abby and making her a heroin addict, okay? So Michael decides, I'm going I'm to do everything I can to make Abby a heroin addict, and the fact is, he is going to be successful, okay? So whatever he does, he, you know, he, has a, he has a needle or whatever, and he's going to give Abby an injection. Maybe he's tied her up, okay? He's going to give her an injection. There's nothing she can do about it, okay? And so after he gives her this injection, like obviously people take heroin for some reason, and I think the reason they take it is because of something they get from the injection. And so the notion is, is that this man is going to inject Abby with heroin. And when he does, her life is going to be ruined because she's going to become a slave to the heroin. And you could use cocaine, obviously, or anything else that is going to destroy her life. Meanwhile, there is the protective father. Okay? And let's imagine, let's imagine... That this is true, okay? Now, and I, you can say, well, that doesn't have to be the case. This, this is the conditions for the scenario, okay? There is only one thing that Miles can do to stop Michael from ruining his daughter's life. And that is that he has to kill him. The only thing that Miles can do to stop Michael from ruining Abby's life and making her a slave to heroin for the rest of her life is to kill him. Here's what would happen. (laughs) If that is the only thing that Miles can do, Miles is going to kill Michael. There is no other choice. Because if he doesn't, Michael is going to destroy the life of the one whom Miles loves. So why does God do what he does? Because he recognizes that in Michael and those who don't serve the Lord, there is found the conditions which are going to destroy all possibility for the successful life of this one whom the Father loves. And he's going to kill this one in order to save the life of that one. Thanks, Michael. Abby, stay there.
Brenham. The scenario that I painted, have a seat, girl. The scenario that I painted, I think, is in many ways a true one. But the one I'm going to paint now is just as true. Because in some cases, it's not just the other nation that wants to come and destroy the one whom God loves. There are times, even when Israel itself does things that destroy Israel itself. And so let's imagine, and again, we're painting a scenario that's absurd and, I mean, just so out there. But let's imagine that it's not Michael, but it's Brenham. And let's imagine that something has happened in Brenham's life which has caused her to go so far off the deep end that she's gone. Let's imagine that Brenham is not coming back. There's nothing that anyone can do to make it so that Brenham will ever be what her father wants her to be. She is absolutely lost. And now Brenham decides that she's going to take her sister down the same path. And there is nothing Miles can do except kill Brenham in order to prevent her from killing Abby. My sense is that this is also part of the scenario that God has to deal with. That's why he says in verse 56 in Numbers 33... I will do the same to you. Why? Why does he say that? Just because he wants to destroy them? Would that be Miles' motivation? If he decided that he actually had to destroy Brenham's life, would he say, well, I'm just going to destroy her for the sake of destroying her? Of course not. But if there was no other choice. If that's the only choice that Miles had, and he said to me when I, when I mentioned this to him, he said, you're not going to actually make me answer, are you? <laughs> and, and I said, no, I won't. I'll, you know, I'll do that for you. What father wants to be able to have to answer that question? And yet that's exactly what God has to do. He has to answer that question. What am I going to do? And the only thing I can surmise from Scripture is that God, faced with this dilemma, decides that although the value of Brenham and love for Brenham means everything to him, that in this circumstance, when there is no other option, that that's what he has to do. Thank you very much. <laughs> See? Like I... Like <laughs> Like, that doesn't surprise me that, that this dilemma would be so 
agonizing and cause so much pain. God has to deal with exactly that kind of scenario. And so the next time we think to ourselves that our God is one who just flippantly is going to send his children of Israel into Jericho and destroy everyone in Jericho. Why does he do that? It's not because he hates the ones in Jericho. It's because a choice must be made if anyone is going to be left to be in relationship with him at all. Now let me show you how this carries out in the book of Judges. And then we'll be done here. Look at the book of Judges with me. And I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 27. Judges 1.27. Judges 1.27 says, But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanak or Dor or Eblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal or however you say that, who remained among them. But they did subject them to forced labor. And this just continues. Neither did Asher and neither did Naphtali and neither did Dan, neither did any of the tribes drive out those who were among them. So we get to chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. You've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. And it's not so much a promise, as it's just a statement of fact. This is going to happen because you didn't drive them out. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they, call, they called that place Bochim, where they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Go over to verse 10. After that, sorry, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So the first generation doesn't drive them out. This generation doesn't even know God. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, their God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Asherah. Why is he angry? Because he can't have relationship with those whom he loves to have relationship with. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them, was against Israel, to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Why? Because they would not do what God wanted them to do, which compromised the possibility of him having relationship with the countless generations in the future. And that is what he wants. He wants relationship with his people. We need to recognize how tragic 
It is. That God's destruction takes place of people. But we also need to recognize how horrible it is when destruction doesn't take place. Obviously, living among the people of the land corrupts them. It breaks their relationship with God, the most important thing to him. He wants relationship with his people. He wants relationship for his people, but they cannot have it if they are corrupted. And he will sacrifice even some of his chosen ones in order to have relationships with others when the relationships of the chosen ones can't be preserved. Some people talk as if God is unfair to the people Israel conquers. As if Israel is just his chosen ones and they're going to go in and they're going to destroy everybody and that's just his will. But what worked for the people who were not serving God, period, the same works for Israel. Consistently, God punished Israel with great destruction. If you refuse to have a relationship with God, he will not make you have it. But neither will he allow your refusal of relationship with him to destroy the potential of others to have relationship with him. To him, this is just too important. More important even than the physical lives of those who reject him. Because he wants so badly to have relationship with his people. So, there's my answer. I actually think that it's reasonable, all things considered. And so I've chosen in my life to continue to trust him. Even when it sometimes seems questionable to me. But I don't think that my faith in him is held blindly without some reasons. Even if I'm not completely satisfied because I can't see everything or have every question answered to my full satisfaction. It's reasonable to me that God values relationship with human beings so much that he is not willing to let the lack of faithfulness of some destroy the faithfulness for all. And so the decision on God's part is not easy to have to destroy the life of one in order to have relationship with the other. The only thing I can figure is that to destroy the life of the one is absolutely necessary in his mind in order for him to have relationship with the other. And at this point, I can't question him on that. And so what I'm hoping is that we will be faithful even when we don't completely understand because we trust that God desires for all of us relationship with him and he is doing everything that he can to have that relationship. If you have questions, you can certainly ask them. I may have better answers next week. We can keep wrestling with this together. Let's pray. Lord, this is a question that people in churches and people in the world consistently ask of you.
we don't always understand what you're doing. And even my attempt at an answer today is, it's just a, a human answer. It's, it's one human being trying to think through the question and provide answers when maybe I'm totally out to lunch. But Father, I pray that what we've looked at today and, and then the desires of our hearts will cause us to trust you and love you no matter what. Help us to to respect who you are, to see in you your desire to be in relationship with us and to honor that throughout our lives. Help us to be faithful. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.